millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Selectionary the podcast that codifies the canon of films from one of the world's greatest animation filmmakers, Henry Selleck. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm asking, what's this? So join us in our quest into the glorious world of Henry Selleck. Jake, Steph, welcome back. We're back with another mini-series for 2022. Yes, and Michael, you, you seem to have a lot of eyeliner on, your hair, you've back-combed it. Is that, an, is that a hoodie that goes all over your face and zips up the... Ins- it's, it's, a, it's a new look and I like it. Yeah, where's I, yeah, that come I'm from? I'm wearing knee-high purple-black striped <laughs> socks. Yeah, you've, I can see you've been to Claire's Accessories and got a uh, little punch in your earring, in your earlobe as well. <laughs> And, you know, this is really what I'm wearing on a Wednesday morning anyway, but there is a reason for this, though, of course. (laughs) Our new miniseries is going into the world of stop motion, starting with that teenage goth touchstone of The Nightmare Before Christmas, because the filmmaker we're going to talk about this time is Henry Selleck. And because Henry Selleck starts off making films like The Nightmare Before Christmas, James and the Giant Peach in the 1990s, and then makes the first feature film with the stop-motion animation powerhouse that is Leica Studios. We then, we're then going to transition halfway through this um, this mini-series, much like a Henry Selleck film. We're going to start in one world and go into another. We're <laughs> going to go from the selectionary to the Lycanography. And I'm really excited about this because a lot of listeners, um, all the way through since the very beginning of the podcast, when we've talked about what other studios out there are like Studio Ghibli, who they have a defined aesthetic, key filmmakers, key films that um, are are keeping the flame burning for great animation in the 21st century. And Leica has come up many, many times. Michael, would you consider for us that this two-pronged approach to the series, is it more like a one series and a sequel to that series or is it a double album Ooh, it's like a it's almost like a nested sequel isn't it because (laughs) (laughs) or much or or a a spin-off 
sequel, I suppose, because Henry Selleck, of course, makes the first feature film at Leica, Coraline, and then goes off to do other other work elsewhere. Uh, but then Leica goes from strength to strength afterwards. Oh, double album. Well, and th- Maybe it's like so a many... double album that has a seven-inch <laughs> single in there. Maybe it's like uh, the Clash album Sandinista, where it's a triple album with an extra single inside. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say it's like that, that Jack White pressing where there was a seven-inch single within the 12-inch single, like, but you had to crack open the 12-inch to get to the seven-inch. So then half the podcast will be deleted forever as soon as you start the iconography. Anyway, what, it's very exciting because there's... A, there's so many forms that we're going to be talking about as well, because I suppose generally when we've done these mini series, the films that we've looked at and the filmmakers we've looked at, we've had a set style that runs throughout. And as we transition through Selleck's career and all the, the films that, and what they look like, and we're getting into live action stuff and then we go back to stop motion. And then we get into Leica and we get what all of Leica's films look like, but then all of what Travis Knight's films look like as well. I think it's, it's such a um, such a broad palette of visuals that we'll be exploring as well, which is very different to anything we've done before. Yeah, are you excited for this journey, Steph? I'm super excited. I've got my rip tights on. <laughs> got my. Well, Steph, you've got the credits. You you saw my Chemical Romance this year. I did. I did. So I'm already living in that kind of emo world. So this is just an extra, an extra little present for me that we get to do this um but yeah no really excited for the henry selleck portion excited for the Leica portion um because i f- feel like that's a few kind of recent films that i've got to see in cinemas and like i guess appreciate the artistry of stop motion as an adult and not as a kid who's just like what is this this looks weird and <laughs> not actually kind of fully grasped that it's you know made by human hands um so i think this would be really interesting um and i mean our connection to ghibli is getting a little bit looser a little bit more tenuous but i think that kind of like handmade element is like bringing us back to that that kind of vibe so i'm really excited and much like ghibli or or the the story we told on the podcast there's going to be great films it's going to be great behind the scenes production stories big personalities making them as well with their own stories that we're going to uncover all the way through let's see if it's it's going to be as cohesive as some of our miniseries in the past as you say jake we're going all over the map in terms of the styles of stories we're looking at and then filmmakers coming in and out of focus but i'm ready for this journey i'm ready to be whisked away (laughs) (laughs) should we jump in with a bit of synopsis absolutely This is the heartfelt tale of Jack Skellington, the pumpkin king of Halloween Town and all things that go bump in the night. Bored with the same old scare and scream routine, he yearns for something more and soon stumbles upon the glorious magic of Christmas Town. When Jack decides to bring this joyful holiday back to Halloween Town, his dream to fill Santa's shoes unravels and it's up to Sally, the ragdoll who loves him, to stitch things together again. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, Michael, Brave New Worlds. We're talking about stop motion. We're talking about an American filmmaker and American studio as well. Can you tell us the heartfelt tale of Henry Seller? Yeah, so let's start with Henry Selleck. He was born in 1952, grew up in New Jersey. As a kid, he was obsessed with drawing, and he was perfectly placed, being born in the 1950s, to have his mind blown by the fantasy films that featured the amazing stop-motion creations of the animation wizard that was, that was Ray Harryhausen. So films like The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Um, Henry Selleck saw that when he was only four or five, he said. He was taken to the cinema to see it by his mum. And he said, there is an incredible cyclops in that film. It seemed absolutely, totally real. And it stayed with me my whole life. And that's the, the magic of those films that even now, those creations look incredible. Um, one thing you'll find as we go through this miniseries talking about Henry Selleck is that he's very open about his influences and loves talking about the films and filmmakers that inspire him. And he has a very broad taste that sort of grew as he grew older. So when he was young, he saw the cutout animated films um, of Lotte Reniger, like The Adventure of Prince Ahmed, which is an incredible early film which uses you know, cut-out collage animation, which still looks incredible today. Then later at college, he had his mind open to independent short animation from Eastern Europe and from Canada, and that led him to studying at the California Institute of Arts, which we generally hear called Cal Arts which at the time in the mid-70s, late-70s, early-80s, was pumping this exciting new generation of animators out into the world. People like Brad Bird, John Lasseter, John Musker, Glenn Keane, these animators who would change the industry, that new um, breath of life that would uh, you know, see fruit in the 90s at Disney and Pixar and beyond. Um, Selleck studied experimental animation and uh, character animation when he was at CalArts, um, and he had his horizons broadened even further. And he talks about seeing the work of the incredible Czech stop-motion animator Jan Schwankmeyer there, uh, but the film Jabberwocky in particular. So this amazing broad taste, but focusing in the end on stop-motion. However, much like many of those contemporaries I mentioned earlier, uh, Henry Selleck um, 
has his mind blown, his talents sharpened at college, and then gets stuck in the Disney machine. He ends up working as an animator on some of the films, um, I think, our pals on the Disneyversity podcast call The Dark Ages <laughs> of Disney. Uh, films like Fox and the Hound and The Black Cauldron, Basil the Great Mouse Detective, um, as well as working on some of the live action animation and hybrid films that come around, come out around that time, like Peach Dragon, Tron. He also does some work on The Watcher in the Woods, which is, I think, a bit of a cult favourite uh, for some people of that generation. Um, it was not a great use of Henry of Henry Selleck's talents. Uh, he was always working on the sidelines on the stuff he really wanted to do. He made short films. When he was at Disney, he made a film called Seepage, um, and then he eventually just left to to go hit out on his own and make his own films. He made commercials. I think he worked on the Pillsbury Doughboy adverts in the late eighties. That's what got him a lot of acclaim. And then he worked on a series of uh, idents and short bits of animated business that would play on, out as interstitials on MTV in the late 80s and into the early 90s. Um, and that sort of is where Selick was at the point of The Nightmare Before Christmas starting. But we should also then flash back to one of Selick's colleagues at Disney in the early 80s who had a very similar arc or experience at least. And that was a bloke called Tim Burton. He studied at CalArts and he found it even more difficult for him for to, to find himself in the disney machine uh, but famously he was given like a lot of leeway by the execs and the higher-ups at disney and he was like f- had these short films funded by disney that spoke a bit more directly to his tastes and talents he made the stop-motion film vincent about a kid obsessed with vincent price and also he did a version of hansel and gretel that went out on telly and then he made Frankenweenie, which eventually he'd remake many years later. But that was originally a short film that he made that was going to play out as a double bill, I think, with a Disney feature. But it wasn't what they wanted, and they fired him for wasting company resources and time. Um, but this was all the maturation of the early years of Tim Burton, which would eventually flourish into the aesthetic and style that would be, make him a very unlikely blockbuster force in Hollywood by the late 80s. Because when he then leaves... Um, he then makes Pee-wee's Big Adventure, he makes Beetlejuice, Batman. And when those films were um, putting him on top, what brought him back to Disney was a project that he'd originally proposed in the early 80s called The Nightmare Before Christmas. It was meant to be a festive seasonal TV special. And he created a few pitch materials, like a proposal that was in the form of a poem, a few character sketches and designs and some actual character models that were made by Rick Heinrichs, who's one of his closest collaborators during this period. A lot of what we associate with the Tim Burton look was actually created by Rick Heinrichs. Um, So by the early 1990s, Disney was a very different company to what it was in the early 80s. Um, And this was the Disney Renaissance, at least the early years of that, with Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin putting the studio back on top form. And the exec, David Hoberman, wanted to push things even further. He said he wanted to show audiences that Disney could think outside the box, do things differently, do unusual things. And so that led to The Nightmare Before Christmas being pulled out of the vaults, dusted off. Um, You know, we only have so much time. I've already talked so much in this context section. There's so much to sort of unpick about this production because it's become such a storied one because the film has become such a cult favourite and people love digging into the process but let's just go through the key players and what they brought to the production yeah well i I think the key thing to think about going into this is that we're starting 
a Henry Selleck series with a film that's called Tim Burton's <laughs> Nightmare Before Christmas. Absolutely, and that's always one of the top um, kind of discussion points about this: is that who owns this film? Who is the who is the voice behind this film? And it's obviously very complex. So you have Tim Burton, who at this point is busy elsewhere. He does not direct this movie. Uh, his main contributions were you know, having his name in front of the title all those pitch materials in the Disney vault, and then a sort of heft that he brings to the production because um, uh, you know, he, has that, that he's, he has that heat from films like Batman behind him. So Henry Selleck talks about him being sort of like a, a heavy or a, a mafia boss that would just kind of back what Eddie and he created decisions that the production would make in, you know, in the face of the Disney, Disney, Disney execs. But apparently he was only on set a handful of times over the course of the two-year production, maybe 10 days in total. And then we have Henry Selleck, of course. He's granted this huge canvas and a rare opportunity to make a stop-motion feature on this scale. Um, you know, for a large studio with a wide theatrical release at the end, really rare. He's leading a production of over 100 crew members, animators working on 20 stages, over 230 sets were made for the movie, 220-odd individual puppets were made. Massive, massive production, and, you know, unlike anything really that anyone had seen in stop motion before this. And here's a quote from Selleck. We took an old technique and did the highest quality stop motion that has ever been done for that many minutes. We moved stop motion up to a high level of performance in timing, lighting, and computer-aided camera moves. We made it a serious contender rather than things that look like toys on a tabletop with two glaring lights. So we have Burton, Selleck. We also have, composing the music, because this is a musical, Danny Elfman. Um, and that is uh, you know, a, a returning collaborator for Burton. He'd worked on... Um, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Batman, Edward Scissorhands with um, with Burton. And he's tasked with writing the score and the, and the songs. And he's given a lot of creative leeway from Burton in the process. Like he's given the proposal an, an outline of the, the, the plot. And he says, go away and write some songs. So it's actually a very personal score for him. There's also Caroline Thompson, who's um, who wrote the screenplay. She's just come um, on board after co-writing Edward Scissorhands. Um, she's brought on board after the previous writer apparently completely flunked the job. I think the quote she gives is that uh, the original writer drank their advance <laughs> and completely, um, you know, completely failed to give to give them a workable screenplay. So she wrote a draft of the script in two weeks. Um, so, but when she's writing that script, all the songs had already been written and demoed, and the film was already in active production elsewhere. Henry Selick with his crew were making the stages and actually shooting animation so all this stuff's happening at once which is very makes it very hard then to see there's no real def definitive start point really to any of this now as i said this is like a thorny one because almost everybody involved has said something contradictory about the production process over the years sometimes self-contradictory as well um and everybody is, you know, is wheeled out for every anniversary for a new interview and also you have these sort of competing voices where some are maybe more extrovert than others Henry Selleck is is not as you know you compare Henry Selleck to someone like Danny Elfman Danny Elfman's a much more vocal kind of personality Tim Burton over the years doesn't really talk about this film as much as he did when it first came out but a lot of attention has been given very recently to um, Caroline Thompson's input into the film probably because we're looking back at this very blokey atmosphere if you think about Danny Elfman, Tim Burton and 
uh, and Henry Selleck has been the creative voices. What about the the woman that wrote the screenplay? So a lot of focus has been put on her and interviews have been put out with her. But then meanwhile, Henry Selleck in interviews back when the film came out saying that very little of her dialogue actually made it to the screen. So there's a lot of sort of contradictory clashes here. And there's all sorts of stories about actual clashes between the creatives over the storylines, the ending, character designs. And what does that tell us about the ownership, the, the authorship behind this? This is the selectionary, after all. But it's really interesting to hear Danny Elfman as well talk about this film. He did a couple, particularly now that he's got this new album out, he did the Coachella performance last year of his music, his whole career. He talks a lot about how this was a personal project for him um where he some of the songs could almost be autobiographical exploring his own emotional terrain at the time which is balmy to think about but maybe we'll kind of talk about some of the stuff in detail in the review section so i won't go too much into the soap opera details um let's skip to the release it comes out october 1993 makes a nice amount of money not a massive amount of money, but as I said earlier, it was seen as an experiment and it cost a lot less than other Disney features. And this was back in the day when films didn't have to make a billion dollars every time. Um, but a fun thing out of this, um, it's an animated film that was nominated for Best Visual Effects at the, uh, the Academy Awards, um, which is quite rare, really. Um, it didn't win, so quiz time, folks. What film beat Nightmare Before Christmas to Best Visual Effects? One of the, it, is, is, it is one of the most historic winners of Best Visual Effects of all time, I'd say. Forrest Gump? No. You, Jurassic you, Park? Jurassic uh, Park, there. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. But the important thing with Nightmare Before Christmas really is that it has legs. Or a long tail. Probably a long tail is better for... Um, he has, for he does have long for... legs, though. He's a tall man, <laughs> is Jack saying. <Skellington. laughs> um, several generations of like goth and emo-inclined teenagers have become obsessed with the film. It's been re-released so many times over the years in 3D, in you know, all sorts of formats. The crossover potential has been huge. You know, the um, alternative fashion shop Hot Topic basically owes their own their whole business model to this film. Um, there was a, a, a level of Kingdom Hearts, that amazing crossover video game which took Japanese RPG tropes but put it into a sort of multiverse Disney world. Um, there's a stage there dedicated to the Nightmare Before Christmas. Jack Skellington is an ally player throughout the game as well. Um, they even made a tribute soundtrack in the early 2000s um, where they performed the whole score but with various sort of emo and um, alternative and you know, pop punk type bands covering the songs and then most recently it's had this whole new life where Danny Elfman has put together live shows and tours of the musical with the, maybe with the film played playing behind them which is uh, really cool to see I, I haven't seen that tour but I went to see an evening at the Royal Albert Hall a few years ago which was Danny Elfman plays the music of the films of Tim Burton where the sequences where they did The Nightmare Before Christmas were incredible uh, particularly because Danny Elfman still has an amazing voice, so he can still nail all of the Jack Skellington songs. So, you know, amazing legacy, but we still have this sense of creative voices jostling within it, which makes this quite a unique film, I suppose, within the whole the whole Ghibli attack uh, worldview. Um, it's easy to forget that at the heart of it all is Henry Selleck making his feature debut, which we should dig into and talk about. So let's crack on with the review section. 
I talked a lot there. I apologize. Uh, first episodes of miniseries are always very heavy on context, and this was a film with a lot of context. But so I want to throw it to you two first. What's your relationship with the Nightmare Before Christmas, Steph? We've already teed you up as the emo of the group, my yeah. romance fan. <laughs> <laughs> yes true i do remember watching this um at some point before christmas i don't remember watching it a lot but when i re-watched it for the podcast like i remembered mostly everything about the film so i think the few times that i did watch it i think all the imagery really stuck with me um so it wasn't like you know the experience of returning to a film that you saw as a kid and you don't remember much and you're kind of reevaluating it um so it was really interesting to go back to it and just kind of remember like oh yeah this film is you know really memorable and so like iconic and um I guess it was always in the back of my mind when I was doing like Tim Burton-esque art GCSE projects <laughs> and uh you know, really getting into Halloween with my dad and making like screaming doorbells that like appear in the <laughs> in the film and stuff. So you actually you scared kind of... some kids with that, didn't you? I did scar. We did scar some kids. Uh, my dad's really into <laughs> Halloween, um, and I think it must have been that we watched Nightmare Before Christmas, saw that scene where um, when somebody rings Jack's doorbell, like a, a scream instead of a, a bell emerges, and then. Yeah, so began kind of half a year before Halloween came of um, working out how to make with kind of little sound boards and motion detectors, how to like make a scream happen when somebody <laughs> rang our doorbell. Uh, yeah, which made a lot of kids cry, but it was really popular. We, we had a very busy house at Halloween. Um, so I think it's definitely, it's definitely influenced my life. Um, but yeah, it's not one that I like watched over and over again, weirdly. Um, but it was, yeah, really fun to kind of, revisit but jake what's your relationship you, you don't seem very emo right now but maybe no i sadly I was, I, I was never an emo um and it, in a way this is this is a true duplitech series because I, I have absolutely no relationship to this filmmaker um whatsoever and so I'm, I'm going in with with no real context um other than seeing all of the the hoodies and armbands <laughs> and earrings that um came from this film and so yeah no relationship at all a uh, very slight memory of james and the giant peach um but the selic as a, as a filmmaker i don't have much relationship to um mm. and yeah this this film is like w watching it for the first time it, it came with i suppose a lot of um weight to it like a lot of the ghibli ones as well um I don't know how much I was going into this th thinking I need to appreciate this as a work of art, as appreciate this as a cultural touchstone for so many people and interrogate why compared to the Ghibli films where there was a bit more weight to like, really be looking at the craft of it. Um, and so it's really useful to have all that context, Michael. And I think essentially the rest of this series is going to be us untangling that wadge of text that you just you just went through because as you said this film it's so hard to pin down who the identity of it belongs to and then gradually as this series goes on i think we'll be able to untangle who henry Selleck is 
as a mm. filmmaker and then look back on this film and retroactively determine how much of him in this is here. I'm going to say a lot. Um, but yeah, really, really interesting to um, think about the way that it's divided up like that. Uh, and yeah, just, just we're, we're boring film nerds who get fascinated by credits. And so you watch this and then all of that, that yeah, the fact that it is actually Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. And then you've got your credited writer being, and the director saying that the writer actually doesn't have a single word of dialogue in the final film. <laughs> yeah, it is fascinating. Um, but yeah, as I said, no relationship to it. So it was a quite strange experience because um, it's quite slight in a way. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's really interesting that it has had such an enormous impact. And I think our Ghibli comparison point might be Mino Totoro, where it is a film that has relatively low stakes, is a bit of just a, a short, very short film that's um, a, a pretty light adventure, but at its core has got iconic character design that ultimately defines like a generation of fandom. Mm -hmm. And it's built around this one figure, really. Um, and it, but How can you say low stakes? Christmas is on the line, Jake. Yeah, <laughs> what's higher stakes than that? <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you picked up on that almost immediately because it's something that we'll come back to. I think a couple of key Henry Selleck quotes that I found in the research for this that I think will you know, do shine light on his process. And he says, in order to go quite out there in the design and the animation, you need a very simple story. And that's something I think he might even have said about. James the Giant Peach. He didn't mess around with the structure of that film. We'll come to that film next episode. But I think is the same with every film he's made. He wants quite a very straightforward storytelling approach. It's not very complex because what you're going to see on screen is going to be quite dense and complex. This one is a very dense film, dense with ideas. And when I said that um, Tim Burton's sketches and Rick Heinrich's original uh, designs and um, models, they were very few. So a lot of what we're seeing here, some of those incredible early sequences, like this is Halloween, where you're going around Halloween Town and it's just so full of characters. Uh, the bit where they have the um, town meeting, where you see the whole, uh, the, you know, the, the whole population of the town coming up into to the meeting. A lot of that, I think, will be coming from Henry Selick, or at least the people working on the active production. That is not Tim Burton. So it's, it is this interesting thing as well, not to be Emperor's New Clothes about it, um, but a lot of what we associate with Tim Burton is in this film. And a lot of what is in this film that has become associated with Tim Burton, he didn't even have any input mm -hmm. into um, because it's Rick Heinrichs, it's, it's Henry Selleck, it's even Danny Elfman. Yeah. It's kind of like the aesthetic that you associate with Tim Burton in that kind of, especially in that just opening Halloween, well, this is Halloween song. You have that very like German expressionist, like mm -hmm. Beetlejuice type sets and all this kind of, yeah, angular backgrounds and um, and just all these like really kind of gruesome characters and yeah. and I think in a, in a way Jack Skellington has become a bit of an avatar for Tim Burton as well. Mm. I think like the the kind of the lang lanky sunken eyes, darkly dressed uh, guy that thinks he's a bit different compared to everyone else is a very you could see how Tim Burton would. Uh, attach himself to a figure like that um, but from the storytelling perspective Michael just to link it back to Ghibli as well and bring in 
Selleck's focus on on the craft of it and the simplicity of the story, to me, and this is a recurring thing that we went to in so many of the Ghibli films as well, it is the the details of the world that bring it to life, and that make the film so fascinating. I'm not, I don't find the the story that investing. Uh, I don't really care about any of the characters. I'm sorry. Maybe on the fifth watch, I really will. Um, <laughs> but uh, that that side of it, I can put to one side. But the the building of the world and how Halloween Town works and the characters within it and their eccentricities and the gadgets that they've built. Like, like Steph, you mentioned the doorbell. Like that that didn't need to exist for the story to work as it does. And there's so many little details like that. There's like the bathtub that's a car. There's the little man that's trapped inside the guitar. Like all of these things that don't have to be there. But it's those those animators and Selick wanting to put as much as they can into this world. Um, and I think yeah, that's the thing that kind of glues you to the screen because you're just bounce. Your eyes are just bouncing around all the time to see everything that's been invented for it. Yeah, I feel like it definitely works as like a spectacle of just looking at what you can do with stop motion animation. And even with that first opening song, you almost just want to go through frame by frame and pause and just look at everything that's going on and all those like tiny details, Um, all those like weirdly dark details for a children's film. Uh, like a tree full of skeletons that are hung by the neck like cool Christmas tale for kids um, yeah it's just like really dense in terms of like world design and and that stuff and I think like the musical aspect really lends itself to that as well because you just have these like long sequences where you can just watch the characters singing and just appreciate like the way that they move and like how their mouths move and how they like express themselves through like the singing voices behind it but also through all of the facial features and stuff and I think that's where like the actual Jack Skeleton character really comes to life and properly kind of moves and emotes and like Danny Elfman's actual singing voice is so expressive mm. and emotional and amazing to to hear and I think yeah that for me is where I actually start caring about the characters and they really kind of like come to life. Well, I, yeah, the the movement of the characters is amazing. It's not just what they look like, it's how they move across screen. Like Jack is such a like a beautiful character to watch. Um like it's like he's yeah, he's dancing across everything. Like he's got this the light-footedness in certain scenes. It's beautiful. Um and I think that combined with that was you say it was computer computer aided camera work i guess where they're kind of timing cameras to move at certain times along with the stop motion because the fluidity mm-hmm. of the movement is amazing like they've put in so much effort not just in how the stop motion characters move but how the camera moves with them and it felt like you kind of particularly like that opening you're thrown into the middle of a pit at a circus or something and you're just kind of swirling around all of these amazing creations jumping in and doing like a showcase for you and i think he he goes back and revisits that idea in james and the giant peach as well when you first get introduced to the stop motion characters as well using the technology that's available to him to capture those characters as well as create them too mm-hmm. well it, it comes back to something we've said before where the the approach to this he is an experimental filmmaker in the sense that um they've created a few 
challenges for themselves. The very design of Jack Skellington, he has no eyes, so how do you make an actual person with a skeleton for a face expressive in animation, uh, stop-motion animation in particular? And then also bringing in all of those technological advances in lighting, in motion control cameras. How do you make this world look as cinematic as possible and bring on all of these visual references from German Expressionism to the Night of the Hunter, noirish influences as well? Um, it's He does approach this like, a, like an experimental filmmaker rather than somebody who is just creating a world to serve a story he's creating a world to serve an aesthetic but also also challenging himself at every state but there's, another, there's that one character well there's also oogie boogie who's a character how do you create a stop motion character that feels real who's meant to be airy Michael, in, in, can, in creation can i ask you a question about oogie boogie go on what's his plan so this is if you're, you're, you're like, like 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 the characters pulling at the thread of his uh, you know his sack body you're pulling at the thread of the very <laughs> thinly sketched out <laughs> script here i don't even know about this but who oogie boogie was is the thing that they clashed over um mm-hmm. and the end there's a whole alternate ending because the, the intention of i believe caroline thompson and henry selick was that oogie boogie was meant to be professor finkelstein in disguise and he wanted to overthrow jack um wow. uh the you know the evil the evil scientist who who you know who, who created sally and it was at the last minute then that they got rid of that and just had him be a bunch of bugs. And yeah, it, it, he just then becomes, he becomes a, he's a lot is, a lot of the chat is focused around Oogie Boogie because also it's a sort of, you know, problematic racial stereotype of a character as well. Uh, because he's, they, they try to, in interviews, talk it up more as being a riff or a tribute to the Cab Calloway type rotoscoped musical sequences that you'd find in old, old, um betty boop cartoons of the 1940s 1930s but it it's a weird one because in a town of evil creatures where the in the um in this is halloween they say this is our job and we're not mean he is a natural malevolent force Mm -hmm. so how, how does that work in the world like why is there actually a bad guy in halloween town where they're all just doing a job and they're just sort of um you know gleeful idiots otherwise (laughs) (laughs) who just can't help doing evil stuff which is what's really fun about yeah. Halloween. Oh, God, like the the joy when they're building the uh, twisted versions of Christmas presents. It, that was maybe my favourite sequence in it because it reminded me. This is like the dark version of the amazing sequence of Toy Story Two, where the toy collector cleans up Woody and makes him beautiful, and it's so satisfying just to have these close-ups of someone working on something and perfecting it, and it's so detailed, and the animation is so focused, and it's just. Like very slow and methodic about the craft of building this beautiful creature in Toy Story 2 and this is that version of it where it's like we're going to focus in on all of these horrible awful versions of Christmas presents but just the pleasure in seeing them built is so satisfying and obviously that's just a reflection of the animators as well they are so satisfied and so happy to be building these nightmarish creatures and there is this sequence which shows their joy at being able to do that it's very sweet (laughs) (laughs) i feel like i can see where um the idea for monsters inc came from Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. this in terms of yeah a monstrous world trying to understand like what brings children joy instead of scaring them uh you know with hilarious consequences (laughs) Um. (laughs) yeah like the the legacy of this is fascinating and again that's something that i think we'll we'll get to a long way down the road uh with this series as well um 
but I think kind of emotionally uh, what has people have held on to that character of Jack uh, is fascinating as well because it's not just how he looks it's like his character as well and I think like this idea of there is someone who sees this happy communal thing the idea of Christmas uh, that everyone seems to enjoy but he remains an outsider and almost has to analyse it from the outside without not quite getting it but trying to get it but ultimately has to do things their own way I think that perspective would be the kind of thing that so many teenagers would be attaching themselves to as well um, because like that it, although it's very very arch and in this hyper stylized world that is such a that's such a real and simple emotion that people of that age could attach themselves to and that's why you go out and buy the hoodie because you it's not that you feel like you are a skeleton it's because you feel like you can feel those emotions that this skeleton feels it's kind of the similar the vibe of um you know the the kind of younger ghibli directors tapping into that kind of melancholy Mm feeling that comes with being a teenager um yeah i guess those kind of like smaller nuanced feelings uh and feelings of longing um that kind of tie into this um as well and i guess yeah connect with that audience a little bit more i think like that generational thing is fascinating i think that's part of the story as well i think there's a version of this where you could read it as this is about a new generation of people trying to take hold of tradition Mm -hmm. and how hard that can be like mm-hmm. so that battle when there is a new family at christmas and you want to say no we're doing christmas this year and we put the tree up on the first of december and we put an angel on top and not the star and, and wrestling back how the traditions should be celebrated from the people that came before you this is what fascinates me about this because yes absolutely that is the key to its enjoying popularity and it the way it fits within the, the whole tim burton worldview of being the sort of eerie creepy outsider you know he grew up in a small town californian suburb that much like what you see in his films like when it goes to the real world that is almost expressly modeled on the sort of town the sort of norman rockwell kind of christmas tv special kind of world that he would have grown up in but what the interesting thing about this and what i think adds a shade of complexity to this is hearing danny elfman talk about what he believes the meaning of the musical is or at least what his personal expression is now that he listens back 30 years later he thinks it's a midlife crisis movie mm-hmm. because he was like mm-hmm. 40 at this point he'd been in a new wave pop group for 10 years and had had success as this uh he'd you know he'd been in Oingo bongo had local success had a few hits but then had bigger success as a composer for um for tim burton but he he looks back now and says that he was having this this moment where he was trying to be something he wasn't and you go and listen to the Oingo Boingo albums at the time and they were going much more mainstream pop trying to try and hit some sort of new main, you know, sort of mainstream trend and he couldn't do it. And then he actually then embraced something else and went on to great success across the 90s as a, as a, as a composer and gave up being a pop star. Gave, you know, he he um, retired from the band like the year after this film came out. So it's really interesting. Well, that's what Jack Skellington is. He's almost like this midlife crisis thing of like, I've been doing this for years. That's not really me. I want to be this guy instead. And then having to come to the realisation that no, you can't just become Santa Claus overnight. (laughs) I definitely got a feeling of like him being a character of like creative burnout. Mm. Um, 
uh, maybe I'm just approaching a midlife crisis already. No, think, but like, definitely, like, like, because he's, like, bored. Not, like, bored, but, like, yeah, he's done all the Halloween stuff mm-hmm. that he can. And he needs to find, like, inspiration from something outside. And, like, the Chris- no, no matter how much they might, like, misinterpret Christmas, it kind of, like, revitalizes him. Yeah. And, like, gives him some new ideas. Well, this is but why the, the simplicity of the story and the greatness of that character design is so good because he lingers so strongly in the mind and the story is so simple that you can constantly just be projecting different ideas onto him as well and he takes them and like all of these different readings of it can absolutely fit it's yeah you can see how it endures so well even if the story isn't up to much in my opinion again like uh, trying to pin so much on the the romance by the end of it and there's just nothing there um but it is something not to get too tim burtony about it but it's what i think um starts a little bit of a shift in the tim burton protagonist so up until now a lot of the protagonists are loners maybe in in a world of their own creation creation if you think of even even his version of Bruce Wayne is that shut off from the world in his own mansion, creating this character that he can become very similar to Pee Wee doing that. Whereas in this, Jack Skellington is more like Ed Wood, which is the film that Tim Burton makes after this, where he is absolutely a fantasist, absolutely um, works outside of society, he's an eccentric, but he does have people looking to him. Mm. He does have responsibilities uh, within the world, and it's about corralling those people around you while you have your creative ups and downs that is, is is at work here which is slightly more complex and this is as you say reading much more into something that is very slight going back to that romance that's another aspect that caroline thompson was unhappy with she um probably the thing that is most um evident of her contribution is she uh, changed the design or asked for a change in the design of Sally, the character, because she was originally more of a sort of maybe vampy character, maybe like Elvira or mm. something, that that sort of stock horror kind of creature. Um, and she she wanted it to be more like a little matchstick girl. And she hinged on this 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 imagery of the way when she throws herself off the balcony, lands on, on the floor and then puts herself back together again. This sort of mixture of vulnerability, but also toughness, being able to bring herself back together. And I think it's some of that simple imagery that uh, endures around Sally rather than necessarily the story of it. And I do love, talk about little details, one I picked up this time, and I've watched this film probably 50 times in my life because Ivo, my three-year-old, is really into it. Um when she's sewing herself back together in one of those early scenes, she's sat, she's like leaning against a um, a gravestone in the in the graveyard, and it says "Rip" or "R.I.P.", ah, good. <laughs> <laughs> which is very funny. There's so many good little details in this film. I like the um, I just think like the costumes, like the details of the costumes, are so amazing to look at, and I think it just gets me that somebody has sewn those like tiny costumes that the characters then need to move in and well, Steph you are someone who has sewn up clothes for a toy frog <laughs> that is very true that is very true so this definitely connects with me I would absolutely recommend watching Prop Culture which is um, a series on Disney Plus which kind of goes and it's, it's a guy who likes collecting props from his favourite films and there's an episode about Night Before Christmas where they go and visit members of the crew because they were all allowed to take one thing home with them 
and uh, there's this one bit where he goes into a bar with like a production designer assistant producer and whatnot and they they have like one different thing each and one person has the hilltop that jack walks up the one that sort of unfurls as he walks oh. across it and that's just like seeing that stuff still today and rick heinrichs uh, the, des- the designer still has the original jack skellington um kind of puppet from 1982 and it's still in like perfect condition um i'd, I'd recommend watching that stuff if you get off on that stuff very quickly before we wrap up the review section um let's do tag yourself maybe this could be like a recurring segment let's see how we do but um who are you in this film jake um I, I'll, I'll take my man that i already highlighted uh who's trapped inside the guitar of the uh the kind of amazing greek chorus band that just sit on the streets narrating everything that's going on um i, I wonder if that's a, a lift that paddington took from them because paddington have got oh. that amazing band that followed the events of it and i wouldn't be surprised if they took it from here I think, look closely, I think the head in the guitar is meant to be Danny Elfman. <laughs> there we are, I'm hair. Danny Elfman. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they, there was supposed to be a disembodied head of Tim Burton when the, I think, the, is it the vampires are playing ice hockey? Um, but that was deemed too gruesome by Disney, so they took out Tim Burton's cameo. Uh, Steph, are you in this? Who are you? I am either the little spider that is the mayor's bow tie. <laughs> or... Zero's little light up nose. Yeah. Oh, oh zero. shout out to the mayor again. Another lift. I think Lego Movie took their Liam Neeson good cop bad cop from the mayor from this as well. Um, we are recording this at the tail end of a heat wave in the south of England, and uh, so I'm going to say that I am that amazing feat of animation of the drippy gloopy Uzi guy. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea how they captured that because it just looks like he's dripping in live action in front of your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> that is me and that was The Nightmare Before Christmas what a treat to talk through one of my favourite films because I'm absolutely of the generation that saw this as a kid I, abs- I had this the soundtrack on tape as a teenager mm-hmm. I was very much a goth and me and my friends were into this film. We discovered it on VHS and now sharing it with my three-year-old is amazing. Oh, thank you, Steph and Jake, for talking through that with me. I'm imagining you walking around as like a really moody teenager and then in your headphones, it's the like, kidnap the Santa Claus, put him in a box. <laughs> I, I love this. Oh, we could do a whole extra episode on just the soundtrack. Maybe we should do that someday. <laughs> but next week we have James and the Giant Peach going up to 1996, going into the world of Roald Dahl movie adaptations and following Henry Selleck on his journey to make stop-motion animated feature films. Can't wait for that. Until then, you can keep up with us uh, on social media and on email. If you've got thoughts on um, Selleck's films or Leica's films, we'll be doing our mailbag, as usual, at the end of the series. So email us at our new email, which is just ghibliotech at gmail.com or tweet us your thoughts at, at ghibliotech or, where, or on Instagram. Uh, we're at ghibliotech.pod. Rule on uh, Twitter individually too. Steph's over there at underscore Steph Watts. Michael is there at Michael J. Leader. And you can follow Jake at Jake H. Cunningham. And if you haven't heard enough from us and you want even more Ghibliotech in your life, you can, of course, join us over on Patreon. So head to patreon.com slash Ghibliotech. Uh, along the way with Selick and Leica, we're going to be doing 
some bonus library cafe episodes. Those are our episodes that are a bit looser, exploring things that we're watching that aren't specifically tied to Ghibli or whatever miniseries we're on at the time, but are kind of going to be tangentially related. Um, I've been talking to Michael about the merits of Bumblebee for years now, <laughs> and I'm hoping I can squeeze in uh, a viewing of that to go alongside this series. Um, but mentioning that Patreon, we want to thank all the people that have joined us on Patreon uh, since our last series, uh, because you joining us on Patreon means that we can carry on doing this show, which we love doing. So thank you so much. Yes, let's shout out Christopher Dunn of the Dunnage Warehouse. And the Script Apart podcast. So Al and Camille, thanks so much for supporting us. And if you don't listen to that podcast, go and listen to it. There's so much fun there. And I think there's even a Nightmare Before Christmas episode to be checking out. Fantastic. Thank you to Craig Joyce. And to Flora Fisher. Thanks, Sam Engel. To Thomas of Jaggy Snake. Thank you to Bethany Arnold. And thank you to Ewan Parry. Thanks to my dad, Steve Leader. <laughs> thanks to our good friend, Ross Hamilton. And finally, thank you to Carlos Galliano, who I believe sends in a mailbag um, missive back in the Hossida miniseries. Oh, Carlos, thank you so much for listening to the show and for getting in touch with us. There we are. Thank you to all our patrons, past and future. And as I said, it's patreon.com slash Ghibliotech if you want to join them uh, and listen to our Library Cafe bonus episodes or join our Discord as well. I've been loving the Discord uh, that we've been running for the past few months. Lots of great Ghibli chat on there. The, the peak of nerdery, Michael. Some of the stuff here, we are being put to shame, aren't we? We're being put to shame. And some of the shelves that we're <laughs> seeing, the bookcases full of Ghibli stuff. That's definitely my favourite thing. You posted some a picture you found of someone who'd collected the entire Ghibli soundtrack oh, God. collection. Yeah, which um, gosh, remortgage your house. Lovely. Thank you so much for listening. Hi listeners, I'm back for a trivia nugget for The Nightmare Before Christmas. And this is more for the 90s kids among us, um, or the comedy fans at least. Something that's always blown my mind about The Nightmare Before Christmas is one of the voices, of course the voice cast is incredible, you have you know, Chris Sarandon, Catherine O'Hara, amazing voices throughout, uh, but particularly in the sort of chorus, you have Greg Proops who many will know as one of the titans of the improv comedy troupe seen on Whose Line Is It Anyway, both the UK and US versions, but is a long-term stand-up comedian as well. And he had he's had a very good sideline as a voice actor, popping up here as the Harlequin Demon, the Devil, the Sax Player. He's also appeared on stage more recently in some of those live Californian restagings of The Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, Jake is a particular fan <laughs> of his appearance as Fode, one of the <laughs> pod racers in The Phantom Menace and beyond. Any PlayStation gamers out there might also recognise his voice from the pandemonium side-scrolling 3D video game. Wow, that's a blast from the past. But that's listen out for Greg's voice <laughs> next time you watch The Nightmare Before Christmas. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.